Welcome to David Gogo's Soul Bender podcast. A journey through the blues as seen through the hazy recollections from a life on the road. Hello, thank you, etc. This is what's known as episode 32 of the David Gogo Soul Bender podcast. Thanks for your ongoing support at paypal.me slash gogoguitar. And please keep those questions coming. You can email soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com or fire up the amazing machine that records your voice on our anchor page. The new GoGo album is being bolted together at David's secret underground lair, which is on top of a mountain. So hopefully that mountain is not an active volcano. And noted blues harp man, fabled monkey junker, and Juno award winner Steve Mariner is heavily involved. I was going to make some sort of Rime of the Ancient Mariner reference, but Steve was born in 1984, so that's not going to work. Anywho, here comes a chat with lots of Steve and David, a slice of Steve's latest album, and very little of me. I thought we'd add some ambiance to this one, so I put the lads in David's cavernous recording studio, where they're live from the floor in the name of authenticity. Today's $10 word is authenticity. And here we go. Well, alrighty, uh, back here on Gogo Mountain today, and um, got my buddy Steve Mariner at the house. And what we're doing is uh, we're recording my next album. It'll be an acoustic album, and Steve's producing, engineering, and playing on it, singing on it as well. And we're just at day three, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. Um, but we're here to talk to Steve about his new album. His new album comes out July second on the Stony Plain record label, and the album's called Hope Dies Last. Hi, Mariner. Hello, Gogo. So um, tell me about, well, let's, let's, let's roll it back. We were trying to think the other day, like, when's, we don't remember the first time we met, right? No, I, I assume it's sometime sort of in the early to mid-2000s, but uh, I feel like the first time I really remember hanging out was at a Harvest Jazz and Blues Festival in Fredericton where... We uh, were both playing, and then we took to the streets and investigated some late-night music, uh, courtesy of Bareth Rajakumar, great harp player from Montreal. And uh, I think there was another couple Ottawa hangs, maybe at the Rainbow or at Irene's or something like that. But, yeah, yeah. I, I seem to remember Ottawa Blues Fest, and there was something in the Armory, and you were going to play with us, but then you took off with Kim Wilson instead from the Fabulous Thunderbirds. <laughs> okay. You ditched, you ditched me for Kim Wilson. Oh. Apologies. Yeah, my regrets. Yeah, so that would have been, yeah, that's like 20 years ago. It's 2002, I believe that was. And, wow. you, and you are 36 years old? I am. Yeah. yeah. So what got you into music in the first place? When I was a kid, I saw the Back to the Future film. Oh, wow. And uh, that famous scene where he's, you know, in 1955, uh, Michael J. Fox's character, Marty McFly, and he joins the band on stage and does a rendition of Johnny Be Good. Uh, from that moment on, from hearing that tune and and just the seeing the visual of like a dude rocking on stage with a bright red 335, I was hooked. So I started doing my homework a little bit about Chuck Berry. And then a little while later, I saw the Blues Brothers movie. And uh, mm. that got me even deeper into, you know, Chicago blues. And I started learning about chess records and all the wonderful artists on there, like Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy Williamson, Howlin' Wolf, etc. Elmore James. 
and um, really started doing my homework about Chicago blues. And uh, I came away from the Blues Brothers movie, Wanted to Play a Harp. There's a couple great scenes in that movie with, you know, one with, uh, or one or two with Dan Aykroyd, Elwood Blues playing harp. But then there's a great uh, scene on Maxwell Street with uh, John Lee Hooker and Big Walter Hortons playing harp in his band. And it's just, uh, yeah, I, I was hooked right away and started getting into harmonica and blues and, and kind of the rest is history. So for the listeners that don't know, when Steve says harp, that's a, a blues term for harmonica. Mouth organ. Mouth yeah. Uh, two, 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 two things, or misery whistle, as we mm-hmm. like to call it. Two things. You know, it's funny, because I'm a hell of a lot older than you, but that Back to the Future scene was pretty iconic. And, and you can tell Michael J. Fox actually plays the guitar. Yeah. You know, like, and that, that's what I liked about it. I'm like, wow, the guy actually plays. Oh, because nothing pisses me off more than you watch some film and there's some fucker. That oh. it, it's just, and it's so... Bad, like the continuity yeah. so bad, you, you just tell they can't play. Or it, or it's a scene in the fifties and they're playing a nineteen eighties Kramer or something. Oh, I know, you know? I know it, that vexes me as well. But the scene from the Blues Brothers, and there's a million great scenes in the Blues Brothers. But that scene on Maxwell Street with John Lee Hooker is probably some of my like what two minutes long. Yeah, might be some of the best two minutes of film I've ever seen. I always because books oh, yeah. on it and it's a killer. What is it, Fuzzy on on bass? Calvin Fuzz Jones. Yeah. Oh, Jones, Jones, yeah. Uh, but Walter Horton, here's a funny thing. We were talking the other day when we were recording about Muddy Waters and the Heart Again album, which I think is one of the best blues records just ever. Oh, yeah. Ever made. Totally agree. And Johnny Winter produced it. He t- told me, Johnny Winter told me, that if he had had his druthers for the albums that he produced for Muddy Waters, he would have had Walter Horton play all the harmonica. But yeah. Walter was such a kind of a fuck up and a drunk <laughs> that they, he, they, he couldn't, they couldn't rely on him. Right. That's a shame. He was a powerful player, man. Yeah, and he's kind of, of all the classic Chicago guys, like, you know, Little Walter, Sonny Boy, Junior Wells, James Cotton. Big Walter is kind of, to me, a bit underrated, you know? Like, I mean, yeah, he had such a big, powerful tone in his uh, couple solos on... Early Muddy Waters stuff are so iconic. You know, like uh, there's a chromatic harp solo on uh, Muddy's song, Don't Go No Further. And uh-huh. it's just, just killer. Just rips your head off. So, you know, plus he did solo stuff too. And, you know, some great harp instrumentals. Like really awesome version of La Cucaracha. And oh, really? Harp, you know, it, he was just a really great harp player that, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. He doesn't always get lumped in with the other grades. No, you he, don't hear He certainly me. was. Yeah. You know, so then you you were hooked on harmonica, which a young guy in the I'd be in the nineties, ninety six, I believe. Yeah, was, that's unusual. Oh yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> you know, all my buds were skateboarding and listening to punk music at the time, and you know I, I did as well. But I then started breaking off into this deep obsession with blues, and and no one came with me. It was just me out there, yeah. <laughs> you know, for a few years anyway. I met some other dudes in high school who, who like, you know, Eric Clapton and stuff like that. But uh, I was very much on a journey by myself discovering uh, old blues, mostly electric Chicago stuff and a bit of British stuff. But I didn't really get into like acoustic Delta stuff till later in my teens, maybe closer even to 20. But yeah, it's just been a lifetime since of study and discovery and uh passion i love this stuff man yeah i think 
Well, I was about 16 years old when I first heard Sun House. I heard that great record that he did on uh, the Columbia label. I, I think it's called Death Letter. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was already, you know, kind of into blues and into, you know, the British 60s blues rock stuff. But once I heard that record, it was just like, I, 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 it not, I guess I was a snob in a way, because it was almost like, if you can't dig this, then I can't dig you. <laughs> Were you like that? Yeah. Well, for sure, man. I mean, uh, plus I was playing with, other musicians at the time who were very much, uh, well, we had a, you know, we were also snobby and it was, it was more about Chicago and the sort of late nineties West coast blues thing that had happened, you know, like, uh, Rod Piazza, okay. and, uh, Rick Holmstrom, Junior Watson, some of these great California blues musicians. So and little Charlie and the Nightcats, really into those yeah. guys. Um, so, you know, for a, a good almost 10 years, really, I was listening to, like, 50s Chicago blues and current, like, 90s West Coast blues. Yeah. And if it didn't fit in either of those little boxes, then I was not interested. Right. Yeah, and I think that's just kind of, you know, it's, it's like, it's going to, like, musical college or something. You know, you, you got to pick a major. <laughs> For sure. And, you know, I mean, the funny thing is I've grappled with it since, you know, I, I mean, I've always loved so many different styles of music and different bands, you know, but during this time of kind of tunnel vision where I zeroed in on the, just the really traditional blues stuff, I, I almost felt like this sort of guilt or like shame for liking, you know, Aerosmith. I've always loved Aerosmith or like CCR or any number of like random bands. Huey Lewis and the News have been my favorite band since I was, yeah. you know, young, like really young, you huh. know. So, yeah, I had this sort of guilt about no one told me. I wish someone had told me that it was okay to like everything, you know, yeah. but it we were in this little bubble of like, no, man, if this if it's not this any the real shit, like, you know. Yeah. Which I mean, Makes you, like you say, you major in it and you get really immersed in that thing. And on the one hand, it's helpful, but if left too long, it can be stifling. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so for people that aren't familiar with your career, tell us how you started playing live and who, who, who were you playing with? Was it people your age? No, it's never people my age yeah. till much later. Yeah. You know, um, so I took harmonica lessons from a guy named Larry the Bird Mootham, who's since passed away. But after about a, a year of tutelage, he invited me to one of his gigs at Irene's, actually, in, uh, in Ottawa, Ontario. And um, I was 12, and he asked wow. me to sit in for three songs. And my parents came, and because they were escorting me, it was okay for me to be in the bar, you know. I think also that they served food, but, you know, anyway, so I got in and um, I got up and did three songs. It was my first time being on stage and I was nervous as hell, but I also knew from the, from the downbeat that that's exactly where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. So I started sort of following Larry around for the next year or so, just sitting in with his band. And then through him, I met a bunch of different uh, musicians on the Ottawa scene that's how I met Scott Doubt for the first time, who is a great guitarist, but now a fantastic photographer. Uh, that's how I met Tony D. That's how I met um, lots of people around the around the Ottawa music scene. Uh, Matt Saab, our drummer in Monkey Junk. You know, I met Matt through Larry. Um, 
So I would just follow Larry for about a year. And then uh, Tony D was playing Tuesday nights at the Rainbow. I think it was the summer of 98. So I started going down every week. And he started getting me up to play. And then we became friends. And, uh, you know, you just, you know how it is. You start meeting everybody. And then there was a couple different blues jams I'd go sit in at. And I met a piano player by the name of Johnny Russell who had a band called the Johnny Russell Band, and he started hiring me to play harmonica with him when I was about 14. So around age 14 and 15, I uh, I was playing with Johnny, and then I met J.W. Jones and joined his band for a couple years, and then I left when I went to university, and then I dropped out of university to go on the road with Harry Manx, whom I met along the way somewhere, and I toured with Harry for about two years. I kind of look at that as my actual sort of post-secondary education. Touring mm -hmm. with Harry was a lifetime's worth of information and learning, uh, musical and uh, professional, you know. And um, he kicked me out to go make my own record around 2007. And I put out a record and went on tour, played all the shitty bars in Western Canada, <laughs> and mm -hmm. went home with my tail between my legs. And, uh, and not long after that, Monkey Junk happened. Uh, in the spring of 2008 and uh we kind of got started um uh, pretty quickly you know like it, we just started playing at irene's on sunday nights and after a couple months it was packed all the time and then we started recording and we put out a record and then a couple years later we won a juno and then yeah we were all partying in ottawa that's right when i first met you you were known as south side steve mariner was yeah. it kim wilson that said South side of what? No, that was Billy Branch. Was it Billy yeah, Branch? Billy Branch from oh, Chicago, yeah. yeah. I was something like 15, you know. Oh. He, was, he was in town doing the Blues oh, in the Schools man. thing, and uh, there was a jam at the Rainbow, and a bunch of people like had talked me up to him, and, and you know, I knew who he was, obviously. I was a fan. And uh, we go into the bar, and I'm, yeah, I'm like 15. I'm really eager, and someone brings me up to him and says, Billy, this is Southside Steve, and he turns around, and he's got like a glass of... I think, like, Crevassier. Yeah. He turns around and he goes, he goes, south side of what? Ah. And I, I felt about this oh, tiny, like, I just shrunk, man. you know. But since then, uh, he's been really friendly and uh, and really supportive. He's always been, you know, we've had a great couple hangs over the years and jammed and stuff, and he's been a big supporter. And, and that we were talking about that today, about what we've really missed with the pandemic, especially in the summertime. Mind you, there's there's a lot of festivals in Canada now in the wintertime, too, but it's the hang, the hang oh, with other musicians. That's that's what we miss. I mean, besides not being able to work and, you know, and are up, you know, just being stuck at home or, yeah. you know, we're used to being yeah, sure. these crazy traveling musicians, but we miss the hang with those guys. Um, yeah, so Monkey Junk, it, it's been like, what, 13 years? It has been 13 years, yeah. Uh, although, you know, for the past year, we haven't done a lot. But, yeah. uh, and how many, it's a four albums? Five. Five. Yeah, we've got five records out. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, we were talking about making another one and then a pandemic. So that's put sort of sidelined everything for a time and we'll see when, when it feels right to get back in there. But I'm sure we'll do another one at some point. Right. But you've made your own album. So why don't we have a listen to a song from the new album? I said earlier it comes up July 2nd. Or maybe Scott said that. I did not. <laughs> um, Hope Dies Last is the name of the album. Um, what song are we going to hear? 
Uh, this is the single. It's called How High. Uh, I co-wrote it with a guy named Chris Kirby from uh, the Maritimes. He's from Newfoundland but lives in Nova Scotia now. Um, it's just a rockin' little tune and um, features Jimmy Boskill on lead guitar, Darcy Yates on the bass, and Glenn Milcham on the drums. <laughs> I make then I just might I'm a Mustang baby running wild grab my mane and take a With a big old bone, just call my name and I'll bring it on. Home. I'm a honeybee, but I don't sting, but I'll sting all night if it's your Steve Mariner's new album, Hope Dies Last. Um, you mentioned some of the people that played on the album. Well, let's talk about it. Number one, where did you record it? That's kind of a long answer. There's uh, The songs on the record come from six different studios. Wow. Uh, you know, when the pandemic struck, I had some downtime, as we all did, and I started sort of taking stock of all the little recordings I'd done here and there over the years, and... Um, so a couple of the songs are just one-offs from sessions kind of over the last four years or so. Like I did one in Toronto at a place called Baldwin Street Sound, uh, engineered by my friend Aaron Goldstein, who also plays pedal steel on that song. It's called Something Something. Um, the first song of the record, Take Me to the City, was done at Greg Keeler's house from Blue Rodeo. He's got a home studio outside of Toronto. And... Uh, that was, yeah, I think in 2018, and then I just never did anything with it yet. And uh, a couple, sorry, one song I did at home, uh, at my own little studio in Toronto, I call The Coach House. And the other six or seven songs were done at Jimmy Boskill's studio, the Ganaraska Recording Company. Um, sorry, one of them was done at the, the predecessor to that 
called the, the Drafting Room. And now, since September, he's been working out of the Ganaraska Recording Company in Coburg, Ontario. Okay. So it's kind of a mishmash, but uh, the bulk of the record uh, is done, you know, with Jimmy and um, in Coburg. We'll get to Jimmy in a minute. Uh, I just want to say, like, when you were first recording, because everything's... Did, did, was that the, the kind of master plan? Was these songs are going to be for my record? Or were you just saying... I got. I have one song. I can record it and see what happens. A little bit of both, you know. Um, I had booked a session at Baldwin Street in Toronto, and I showed up woefully unprepared. I had booked it months in advance, thinking, "Oh, I'll, I'll write some stuff." Yeah, right. And I should. I should go start making some songs. And then I, you know, it's the night before, and I got nothing. And so I recorded a couple covers the first day just to see. I did a the. Uh, Lil George or Little Feet song uh, "Roll 'Em Easy." I did um, that one that ended up being on the Manx Murder record. I did a couple years ago, but uh, uh, Reverend Gary Davis "Death Don't Have No Mercy." Did those two, and then on the way in the second day, I just lightning struck and I wrote something something like on the way to the studio in traffic, just driving. <laughs> you know, I started humming it out. Mm-hmm, something something I'm like oh that's a pretty good title <laughs> so, <laughs> you know anyway so yeah that that one just kind of popped up like that I had booked a, a session at Keeler's a little later with four songs ready to go uh, with the intentions of recording them for a record of my own and then you know things happen other projects pop up and they just kind of got sidelined for a while and then uh, once I around March or April of last year, right in the beginning of the pandemic, I realized, okay, well, I got four workable songs here. So why don't I just go in and do another couple sessions and fill out a record and then I'll have a record. And right. that's what we have now. Now, you're a guy that plays just about every goddamn instrument. <laughs> um, what, what do you play on this album? Do you, do, do you mix it up or do you try to concentrate on one thing? I really took a utilitarian approach and I played whatever just needed playing. So uh, on three songs, I played drums. Yeah. On th another two... Actually, it ends up just being one. I did play bass on two songs, but I got Darcy Yates to replace my part because he's superior. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I play a bunch of rhythm guitar, um, play piano on one song, harp, obviously, uh, but you know what? There's not a lot of harp on the record. There's probably only, I think there's only two actual harmonica solos on the whole record. And that's like your first, that's how you yeah. kind of got known is harmonica. Yeah. You know, I mean, like we were saying about the traditional blues craze, when I was really focused on that style of music, then that was my main instrument. Right. And indeed when I tour with Colin James or Harry Manx, that's kind of what I'm doing is a lot of harmonica. But when it comes to my own music, I really enjoy just playing guitar and singing, you know, and right. I use the harmonica as a, any other voice. Like if the song requires it, I'll play it. And if it doesn't, I won't. And I don't, it doesn't matter. Well, we'll, we'll uh, briefly talk about Jimmy Boskill because I, I mean, when I met Jimmy, he was, you know, it's like when you started, he was like this, this young teenager, oh, yeah. but he was amazing. I remember they asked me, there was some kind of a thing in a newspaper 
And what's that 200 hours thing that people talk about? Like if you oh, do 10, anything. 10,000 hours. Oh, ten, is it 10,000? 10,000 hours, yeah. 10,000 hours. So if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you can do it. I think that's bullshit. <laughs> um, I, I've seen guys that have, that have played guitar or something for 10 million hours, and they still fucking suck. <laughs> and I also said, but I brought up Jimmy Boskill. I yeah. said, when Jimmy Boskill was 14 years old, he played like the most badass motherfucker I've ever heard. And was singing, and he still had the baby voice yeah. then, you know. Um, in fact, I remember at the Maple Blues Awards, he, he won an award, and, and I said, you know, usually I'd buy a guy a drink as a congratulations, but somehow I had a butter tart, and I gave him a butter tart. <laughs> he was like 14, and he's like, oh, thank you. Oh, but, that's but hilarious. Let's talk, just, just, just briefly, because Jim's a good buddy of yours, and, uh-huh. and, and, and like he plays everything, right? Pretty much. And, and really yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, everything he plays... He plays well, and if he doesn't, he doesn't play it. Really? You know, yeah. Like so, on this record, for example, he plays uh, pedal steel, electric guitar, bass. Uh, he does a string, like a one-man string section. You know, on the last song, he plays like ten string parts or something. Harmony vocals. Uh, I think that's it this time. But you know, he plays keys. He plays harmonica. He plays everything. You know, he's just. He's the most natural musician I've ever met. Yeah, and and besides his own music and, and recording people, he also uh, is with the Sheepdogs. That's right. And occasionally with Blue Rodeo, is that right? Yeah, so like he's the lead guitarist at the Sheepdogs. Wow. Also in Blue Rodeo, he plays pedal steel and mandolin, I think. You oh, whatever know? they need, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's the utility guy for Rodeo. And I mean, really, it's just freakish how good he is at every instrument. And not, I'm not... Not like technically, you know, he's of course got technical prowess, but taste, man. Like, yeah, he, like he's just, you know, he doesn't sound like a lead guitar player trying to play pedal steel or mandolin. He sounds like he's, he sounds like that's his only vocation, whatever he's doing at the time. It's crazy, you know. I remember uh, I was involved with the Johnny Winter tribute concert in Picton, Ontario, and at the end, it was a, it was a bunch of people on the bill. And at the end of the night, they do the big clusterfuck jam. Yeah. And but you know, there was myself on guitar, Paul Delorier, Rick Fines, like a bunch of people. And Jimmy just kind of looked and went, "Nah, I'll just play mandolin." And he brought out this electric mandolin and blew everyone's tits off. Yeah, man. <laughs> mandolin might be the thing he's greatest at. To be, I mean, I don't know. It's tough to say, but he's just so freakishly good at mandolin. It was really you know good. I mean, I, it was unreal. He can rip like bluegrass stuff, like lightning fast bluegrass licks, or he can play, you know, really pretty folk music, or he does this weird electric hybrid of everything he knows mm-hmm. and plays like electric blues mandolin. It's yeah. bizarre and awesome. Well, enough about that fucker. <laughs> 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 Let's talk more about you. All right. Um, so here's the weird thing. and We can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel here with, with the whole COVID and the lockdown. Because that's the whole thing about making a record in, in these times is how do you get out there and tour it? How do you, you know, you, the, the, the business was, was, get, was so fucked before the pandemic anyways. But the only way to really sell, like physically sell copies of your album is to go on, on the road. Right. And we can't go on the road. How do you feel about... You know, your record's coming up July 2nd. How do you feel about the next six months, which will be so important? Well, I kind of feel like whenever I do get some gigs, the songs will still be new. People won't have heard them right. live yet, so they'll be new for them, and then I'll have a whole lot of copies to sell. Uh, also, I just think, you know what, man? I just want... 
there's some pretty fun tunes on there, and maybe people get to rock out to them this summer and just put them on while they're at the cottage or barbecuing or whatever, you know? I yeah. just... I, and for... Why do we do what we do? We just we just do it. You don't really... You don't... I didn't really think that far ahead. I just wanted to record stuff. I've been learning how to engineer and mix uh, music. That's been my big pandemic project, and this is the first record where I've done all the production front to back, top to bottom, alone, just me. So it's just you? Yeah, I mixed it all. I engineered a couple songs on it. I yeah did all the post-production, so it's kind of like my thesis, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? And I just had to get it done. I wanted I wanted to do it all under my own steam, and uh, now it's done, and you know? Well, that's a lot of work, man. It is. Yeah, it took it several months of mixing, remixing, scrapping it, going back, you know, just... This is the first time where I haven't had to compromise one iota for anyone else, you know, when when making a record. And then luckily you, you've, you've uh, honed your engineering skills and your recording skills so I can steal you for two weeks to make, to make my record. Um, <clears throat> so will this, it'll be out if people want to order it, is it going to be vinyl and CD or just CD? They tell me the vinyl will come when I'm able to go on the road and yeah. actually sell some copies off the stage. But for now, it'll just be digital and CD. So are you on all, all the platforms, Spotify, mm-hmm. Apple, whatever? Yep, wherever you stream your, your music. Um, and if you want a physical copy, you can go to stevemariner.com or stonyplainrecords.com or I think True North, because Stony Plain and True North have partnered up, partnered up now. Um, but yeah, there'll be there'll be links all over my website where to get my music. There's Spotify, Apple Music. There's, you know, you can write me and I'll find out how to mail you one. You know? <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes. Yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll make sure you get it. If you want it, I'll make sure it gets to you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. Uh, that's Steve Mariner, folks. Uh, check him out. The new album, Hope Dies Last, on Stony Plain Records. And we're going to go back to making my record. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. PayPal.me slash GoGoGuitar is the place to go if you'd like to help keep this thing on the rails. And your questions are always welcome. Soulbenderpodcast at gmail.com is where you should send those. I'm Scott James. He's David Gogo. He's Steve Mariner. And a quick poll among all three of us reveals that we love you. This has been David Gogo's Soulbender Podcast. To stay up to date, follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Until next time.